Well, thousand-year period. Here we go. Buckle up. Um, it's going to be really hard for me to condense this into one class. I'm going to, even if I don't finish, um, because next week I really want to spend some time on Reformation. Um, I think it's important. Uh, it, it, it just is one of the most important uh, periods for us to study, to understand really where we sit today. But we don't get to the Reformation until we go through the Dark Ages. Um, we don't get to the Reformation until we see the institution of what happens um, in the papacy. Um, we don't get to the Reformation until we get to see the destruction and power struggle between uh, kings and popes and popes and popes and kings and kings. And, and there is a very good reason why the Middle Ages are often called Dark Ages. Um, the longest paper I wrote in college was about 30 pages, roughly. It was on this time period. It was specifically on the Crusades. Um, I take a great interest in, in this time period. Um, I, think it's, I think it's really interesting, and I'll ask some very direct questions in these notes when we get there. Um, how do we get to, um, you know, when Christ says... When he instructs um, that his kingdom is not of this what? Not of this world. How in such short order do we get to this time period when the kingdom and imperialism was so worldly? Um, it was literally depraved. And it's going to be just interesting to study this. So let's get in this together. Again, I always start with a summary, um, which I really should end with it as well, but let's, let's go through this. So this is really interesting, and this gets overlooked, and you look at Europe and the state that Europe is in today, I mean, we can be thankful for where we sit, let's just say that. Um, you know, if I, I have Christian friends who have lived and worked in England, um, who've traveled Europe, um, and, and it is... Uh, it, it is so liberal and so far, uh, so depraved, uh, so destitute in terms of spiritual and moral principles that um, we have a lot to be thankful for where we sit. And the reason is that is because of the moderating factor of the church. Um, there's still a church. There's still uh, countryside Bible churches like this across our nation that, um, that have an influence and act as salt and light as they are. But let's look at this. So Europe owes more to the Christian faith than most, most people realize. I will tell you that you cannot study European history and then you can't understand American history until you understand European history. But it all is predicated on Christian history. It is all predicated on the, the ebbs and flows, the rise and falls of the Christian church. And I th I'm going to point out some interesting things here this morning that I, I think at the very least you'll go, huh, that's really interesting. When the barbarians destroyed, so when I refer to the barbarians, you remember who those guys were? Well, at least just, just what rough area that they lived in. Rome reaches its peak and then meets these guys um, in a very, very harsh winter. Um, where, Vincent? Yeah, it's Germany. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's, it's what was kind of central in Northern Europe and what we would call modern Germany. So when we could, in, we could insert that when you 
uh, when the Germans or the Germanic people destroyed the Roman Empire in the West, it was the Christian church that put together a new order called Europe. The church took the lead in the rule by law, the pursuit of knowledge, and the expressions of culture. The underlying concept was Christendom, which united empire and church. It began under Charlemagne in the 8th century, but the popes slowly assumed more and more power until Innocent III, who ruled from 1198 to 1216, taught Europe to think of the popes as world rulers. It worked. Later centuries, however, saw the popes corrupted by power and increasingly militant reformers cry out for change. Well, the center of Europe at the time, the political center, the cultural center of the time was still Rome. If you remember last time period, though, there was a power shift. It went east and it went to what primary city? Remember that? Starts with a C, ends with Constantinople. Constantinople. Just a little clue. Uh, so the Byzantines, through Constantine in Constantinople, uh, he shifted it eastward. He wanted to be closer to Israel. He did. But it shifts back. It shifts back in a major way, too. So early at AD 590, Rome was in absolute agony, though. It was, it was bad. Um, the city suffered through the tragedies of floods, atrocities of war, only to be smitten by the relentless spread of the plague. We've all heard of this, right? Black plague was bad. Started as hardly more than a little soreness, a little, you know, sore throat, like you and I might have a little allergies, scratch in our throat, right? Clear our throat a little bit. Well, it didn't stay that way. Uh, within days afterward came the black eruptions and soon a swift death. Um, and let me point this out too. Just this, where we start to gear up at this time in history, um, it is not a difficult period to study. Okay, it is not. Uh, by the end of the age of imperialism, the previous day, we have people writing down history, really tracking history, um, and so we have a very, very good record of history, a very good record of these times. Um, people are writing incessantly. Um, men felt hardly more, so the, the plague is taken, people write. People went insane, quite literally. Uh, carts were piled high with corpses across Rome. You can, you can read about these, these images. Rome became a desert, and I mean that quite, quite also just climatically. Um, it went through harsh winters, and then it went through dry summers. Crops dried up to the point where one of the popes actually had a rally through Rome just to pray for the crops, just to, just to pray for um, you know, God's mercy toward them um, in that way. We've seen that in our own nation's history, right? The, the Dust Bowl days, the Great Depression, and so forth. Um, think of that, plus think of plague, plus think of invaders. and I mean, it just was coming from every corner. So Rome became a desert. The pope himself, uh, Pelagius, Great name to say that, Pelagius. The second died screaming in agony, literally. He was on his deathbed, screaming out until his final breath. This was one of the scenes, or I'm sorry, this was the common scene in Europe in the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. This is what you, uh, what you think of when you saw, you know, Sword in the Stone, right? The, the Disney Sword in the Stone with Merlin and King Arthur. That's the time period. But don't think of that as being accurate. 
Rome was a symbol of the continent. What we call Europe now arose like a phoenix from the ashes of the devastated empire. It did. It, it rose very quickly. Well, why? Christianity brought life and order out of chaos. And I want to make one thing clear this morning before we leave, and that is the how. How did Christianity bring some life out of chaos of this time period? And it was chaos. Let me just point this out too. So just biblical history too. You have the period of Israel. After Israel, you have the judges and the kings. Remember this? In fact, I I know Pastor Rod's in his daily reading. I'm about at the same spot. In all of those time periods, there was roughly about 10 good kings, and some of those were even suspect. Um, If you could find 10 in this time period, if you could find five, okay, in this time period, uh, you were doing well. Um, and, and I want to point something else too, and, and I just want to urge you, okay, I just, I want to plead with you on this fact. Regardless of your political views, or regardless, and I'm going to tell you too, just personally, okay, just, just, as a, just as a fellow Christian, let the word of God work on your heart in, in this area. Let, let scripture speak to you um, and if you want, I, I shared this with the elders last week. I'm actually going back and studying this some more too myself just to, just to help kind of keep some of the personal views in check as well. But um, there's a very good study. Um, it was, it's called a, a Gospel's Response to Government. Um, and the very first um, episode, the very first, um, and I, I'll be glad to share this with you at the end of this class, um, it's put together by Tom Pennington, who's a, a, a pastor at Countryside Bible Church of South Lake, Texas. He's very much in the circle of you know, what we would ascribe to in terms of our teaching and expositing and so forth. Put together a, a really long series, but it's worth listening to. Um, and it really works on the Christian's attitude toward government. So government, obviously, all authority, all authority given by God... Ever since you know Genesis 11, with the scattering of of um, of the nations, right? Um, you know God has instituted government, and whether we want to accept it or not, whether the government was led by a pope or the government was led by a dictator or the government, you know how evil or how good it was, it was all instituted by God. Um, one of the worst governmental time periods ever was during the life of Christ. Went through how many illegal trials, right, to his own death, and kind of scoffs at Pilate when he tells him, you know, I have the authority to condemn you, and he says, yeah, you have the authority because I give it to you. Do you remember this conversation? Um, So Afghanistan government, as instituted by God, the Taliban, um, it, God doesn't talk about democracy as being his form of government. He just says government. Peter, I'll just point this out because this is some stuff that I've studied this week. Uh, in Second in Peter, he talks about government as being a minister of God. The very word minister is deacon. Well, what do, we, what do the deacons do for the church? Given, what do they do? Bill, Fred... They care for the church. They care for the affairs of the church. Right? Well, it's kind of hard to think of Hitler in that way. He was an evil man. 
Stalin, Mussolini, and so forth, but um, God used them in their, in their evil way to accomplish his purpose, just as he may other good leaders who are less evil. Um, and I'm going to go through some of these guys. So let's, let's buckle up. How in the world, in this time period of chaos, did Christianity bring um, order? What did Christianity bring to the devastation to create a new order called the Christian Europe or Christian Europe? Well, we've got to start with Pope Gregory. Um, in his book, Pastoral Care, I, I can't tell you that I've read all of this, just excerpts. Uh, Gregory stressed that the spiritual leader should never be absorbed into external cares as to forget the inner life of the soul nor neglect external things in the care for his inner life. In other words, his personal life shouldn't get in the way of caring for Christians and caring for Christians shouldn't get in the way or become an excuse for him to keep his own life clean. It's interesting how God in every age, every age, has raised up a man or some men, the church fathers or whoever, to pass the torch, to care for the church. Gregory had some awful theology later in his life. I'll get to that, but he also brought some order. You know, the saying goes, especially, in, and I'll, let's just be honest, okay? Let's just also be honest, too. Um, Christians can be and sometimes are the worst and most outspoken toward government, and we complain because we want a Christian government. You know, we want Christian leaders. We want morality to remain and so forth. Um, I don't know what that accomplishes, and we're going to see some of that here through the pages of history. Our Lord continued in prayer on the mountain, Gregory wrote, but wrought in miracles in the cities, showing to pastors that while aspiring to the highest, they should mingle in sympathy with the necessities of the infirm. The more likely charity descends to the lowest, the more vigorously it recurs to the highest. I love this. These, these were, he lived this out as autobiography. This was his attitude. Um, not long after his death in AD 604, the churches began to call him Gregory the Great, and he hated it. Oh, man, he hated it. He wrote as much about hating the title and hating the, the, the power that the, the papacy brought to him um, as he did about the actual policies and, and, and execution of his office. Uh, not long, so the Catholic Church added him to those of Augustine, Ambrose, Jerome. I will say, though, that he was not Orthodox like them. Remember how we studied that? Orthodox trying to keep what was accepted teaching. Gregory um, deviated much from that. Um, but he still... Um, managed to really kind of organize and stave off and perform what we would consider to be one of the governmental um, responsibilities as laid out in Romans 13, which is to be an executioner of evil, to, um, to, to stave off evil. Gregory did a very good job of that, as we'll see. He was appointed as prefect, which really was back then a fancy Catholic term for mayor of Rome, he ran the whole economy, everything from grain supplies, the welfare program to the poor, the construction of buildings, baths, sewers, riverbanks rested on Gregory's shoulders by the age of 33. I think that's amazing. 
Also, he became the head of the tax system. A lot of power. After the death then of Pelagius II, Gregory is elected pope against his desires and considered as punishment. He actually was drugged to the courts. He was quite literally drugged to the courts by his, um, his colleagues and, and voted in front of him with him present because it was papacy law then to be present. Um, and he was voted pope. Hated it, but he didn't have a choice. The prestige of the papacy in the Middle Ages largely rests on the practical success of Gregory through these troubled times. His success is even more astonishing when we consider that he was in poor health. Um, I, I remember re reading one of his writings at the age of 66. He couldn't lift his head. He wrote that uh, the next breath would be a miracle. Uh, he, was, he was himself often sick, uh, you know, suffering from... The, the, the sicknesses of, his, of the age. Um, so it's even, it's even more astounding that he's able to do this, confined to bed. Um, and, and a lot of that too, his own health also sort of dictated his, or, or caused the papacy to become more monastic. Do you remember what that term means? More monastic, what did that mean? Not Mormon as in Mormons, Utah, but like more pause monastic. Um, Remember what monasticism is? Okay, I'll tell you. It's the isolation. It's the, it's the let's get out of the world and get our minds out of the, the distractions of the world and, and isolate yourself into, um, into places that you couldn't be touched by the outside world. Well, the problem with that was what? Remember we talked about this? Well, it goes to the extreme in this age. The problem is you got that milky gray matter between your ears called brain, right? Um, and James is very clear, as other places of scripture, that that's where the battle of sin begins, isn't it? Right? It's in our members, our body. Your brain is part of that for most of us. Catholic leaders began calling him the universal bishop, the universal pope. Um, it was the other leaders around him that saw... Gregory's efficacy and creates what they call God's counsel. Um, at, let me just pause again to Romans 2, I think. It's either 2 or 3, pretty sure 2. is very clear that um, you know, morality or, or the, the laws of the Lord are written, or the laws of our Lord are written where? In our hearts. Every, every man has some sense of Morality, they have some sense of where authority is given. And so it's not a surprise that Catholic popes or bishops or whoever um, use religion to gain even more power. And that's what happens here. They call it God's counsel. They began to confuse in the previous age God's will with their own will, um, like with Ignatius and others. But anyways, Gregory didn't. He hated that. He hated and he renounced pride and, and titles. He wrote much about pride and it's a sickness. He claimed and exercised every opportunity and power throughout the oversight of the whole church. Let me be clear on this. As much as he wrote about hating power, he used his power, which eventually kind of becomes his downfall. We'll see. I, I put this in here, it was too, it was, it's just too juicy to leave out. Um, 
Remember I told you we really don't know how um, Christianity made it to Europe? Remember that? We really don't. It's, it's one of the mysteries of history. But one of the legends or one of the stories, and I, there's, there's some truth to this for sure, uh, but we don't know if this is really how, um, you know, the original, how history originated, how Christianity originated in England. But let me, let me just kind of fill the story out. I think regardless, it's interesting. So this legend circulates about Gregory because he was a very charitable man. He was, he was a missionary. He wanted to be a missionary himself. He, he was very compassionate toward the destitute. Um, he paid very close to Levitical and Deuteronomy law of, of taking care of the poor. And he saw the office of the government. And he saw the office of the papacy to um, help take care of the poor. Okay. Well, he's going through Rome here. And he comes across three English boys for sale in a Roman market, and he took compassion on them asking where they came from. So not, you know, the more history goes by, not a lot changes here. Slavery um, existed then. Um, you know, young boys especially were sold into slavery at this time period to do work eventually. Um, the slave owner, though, explained that they came from Deira, which was the ancient name for what is now Northumberland, which was a province of England. Gregory, though, was so moved that he attempted to travel to England himself. But he couldn't. His own health prevented him. And so he sent Benedictine Augustine. You heard of this guy? You've read his writings, probably. Uh, he was there. Plus, he sent about 40 mar uh, monks to replant the gospel in England. The success of that mission at Kent, and this is traceable, regardless if it came from Gregory and this legend or not, the success of that mission at Kent provides a direct link for all Anglo-American Christianity within the early church. We can trace the Quakers back to this location. Um, and they're mentioned here a few times in this lesson. Gregory defended Orthodox theology. However, he was wayward with his doctrine of man. Um, it, it, one of the doctrines is of the depravity of man. Um, and he taught that in baptism, which is where we start to see regenerative baptism take its early roots and stance uh, and a, on a more um, profound and, and sort of academic level, he taught that in baptism, God grants forgiving grace freely without any merit on man's part. But here's where we go wrong. For sins committed after baptism, man must make atonement by penance, which is simply a form of punishment inflicted by the man himself instead of by God. That is not biblical. Uh, eventually, this concept blossomed into a concept created by the Quakers. And this is interesting. You'll see this today. Uh, into a concept by the Quakers that was brought to the U.S. in the 1700s in the form of a penitentiary. Where do we get the word penitentiary? We get it from penance, um, a punishment inflicted on an individual until he has uh, absolved or until he has for, um, asked for forgiveness of his sin. Today it's jail, where a man would be sentenced until he served penitence for his sins. Now, let me just tell you what we know today as our jail system is one of the most contrary to scripture concepts. Uh, punishment was to be swift. Uh, you, can, you don't have to read very far through your Old Testament or even the prophets that punishment was to be swift. It was to be done right near the crime itself or things are forgotten and lost. 
Um, today, our jail cells are filled with uh, men and, um, and then our penitentiaries you know, and women where it encourages homosexuality. Um, it encourages all kinds of uh, even further crime. Um, it, it is not a biblical concept. Um, and um, sadly, we get that concept from this. Um, Gregory defended it, uh, Greg defended Orthodox, but he, but he went bad. Uh, so we see now a search for unity. There's all kinds of issues, and I'm skipping so much stuff here, okay? I'm just trying to connect some of the big things through this, through this time period. Um, so anyway, search for unity and is rampant across, um, across Europe. It was not long ago. It's not very many generations ago by the time Gregory were... You know, men still have it in their mind of the greatness of Rome, um, of, of the, the protection that a decent government afforded them, even though some of the very people who helped popes like Gregory gain power were the very people who spoke out and cried out against Rome. We see that constant shift throughout history. To this, April 25th, 799, a couple days ago, on St. Mark's Day, a customary day of repentance and prayer, Pope Leo III was leading a procession through Rome, asking for a blessing on severe crop damage. Suddenly, armed men rushed at the Pope. They drive off his attendants and whisked him away to a Greek monastery. It was a mutiny led by his predecessor, Pope Adrian I. So... Pope versus Pope, King versus King, King versus Pope, Pope versus King. Here's one of these examples. It's disunited, okay? It's, it's not in a good state. Some of Leo's allies, though, this is where we start to see the combination of church and state. Some of Leo's allies, though, were able to rescue him and restore the papacy. However, fighting and violence continued until he appealed to the King of Franks, back then this guy called Charles the Great. On December 23rd, a couple days before Christmas, the Pope, holding the gospel in his right ringed hand, I put this in there because they wore the ring because that was his, sort of his marriage sort of to Christ. It was, his, it was a symbol of, his, of, of him being the spokesman for, for Christ, for God. And he's holding the gospel in his ringed right hand, took an oath, purging himself of the accusations by Adrian. He was accused of some homosexual crimes, which may have been. He was accused of murder, which may have been. Um, the papacy at this time was a, was a cesspool. Um, if you've ever watched the, um, this is a couple hundred years later, but if you've ever I've watched it, I, actually I stopped watching it just because it got so grimy. But um, the History Channel, and it's on, um, I think it's on Netflix now too, but did a series on the Borgias. Um, anyway, on, on the Pope, um, who just basically saw the Pope, the, the papacy as an opportunity just to gain wealth and pass on a legacy of wealth to his kids. Just, just, a, just a vile, evil, gross man. Uh, a lot of that's going on here. Anyway, so a couple days later here, on Christmas Day, Pope Leo II placed a golden crown on Charles's head and decreed to the crowd, he said, 
to Charles, the most pious, crowned by Augustus by God, to the great peacemaking emperor, long life and victory. And what do we see here? The Pope prostrated himself to Charles the Great, king of the Franks, and restored the Christian empire. Modern times are marked by the idea of autonomous sovereign states without religious affiliation. That's what we see today. And by the concept of the church as a voluntary association apart from the rest of organized society. But neither of these ideas existed in the Middle Ages. This was far, far from what we know as the church and far, far from what we know as government today. They sought each other at this time, even though they were adversaries. Drawing upon Augustine's vision of the city of God, which he wrote about in his confessions, if you've ever read that book, Charles the Great engrafted the Christian concept of universal Catholic Church on the stock of the traditional Roman view of empire and gave, it, gave to it the medieval world Christendom, a unified society mingling religious or eternal ideas with concerns with earthly or temporal affairs. How did this happen? How could the kingdom that Jesus said, which is what I led into this class with, that was not of this world becomes so much a part of worldly power? The answer lies in the persistence and the idea of the rise of a powerful kingdom. Men are corrupted by power, eventually. And it was no different then. So we have an architect shoot, and I'm skipping several hundred years here. Ideas die slowly. We know this. I mean, I could list off so many things right now, but I won't. Centuries after its fall to barbarism, the Roman Empire continued to sway the imaginations of men. Men still longed for unity that was once embodied by the Roman Empire. As the Greeks believed that Rome had passed over to Constantinople, so the Roman people and their German neighbors thought that the empire would live again among them. And it does pretty soon here. The beginning, and this is where I, I love this part of history, beginning of Roman and Germanic peoples and cultures, the Franks ascended above the others and seemed destined to restore the imperial authority. Who are the Franks? You know this. You got one guess. Replace the K-S with a C-E. And you got what? France. Okay, Franks. So this is more... Um, the region that we would now know, kind of southern France, western France, Alsace-Lorraine, that area. Um, this becomes the political power, and it also becomes the religious epicenter pretty soon. Clovis, I'm not going to talk much about this guy, but he did do one important thing. With active support of the Catholic Church, he had made the kingdom of the Franks a dominant power among the Germanic tribes. After his death, though, the dynasty began to decay into weakness. A new day dawned again for the, for the Franks in 714 when, I love this guy right here, Charles Martel, Charlemagne's grandfather, became mayor of the palace. This guy was known as the Hammer. If you know the Spanish Inquisition, you've heard of this before. Um, so it was, no, it, was, it was a time period not too dissimilar from um, really like the 1990s and early 2000s when the Muslim world was really encroaching upon Europe. You cannot go to today, to France especially. Um, tons and tons of Algerians, Libyans, and so forth who um, migrate to France. A lot of North Africans, 
um, who bring Islam. And let me, I want to point this out too. This is worth pausing. Uh, not a lot, a lot of people, I think a lot of Christians really don't understand the history of, of Islam and Muhammad. Muhammad came way, way after, okay? He was around 570, 580 AD. Okay, I don't know if you know that, but he's way after Christ. Muhammad is the man who wrote what famous Muslim book? Come on, starts with a K, ends with Oran. The Quran, which literally just means the writings. Um, claims to have had revelation by God, claims all these kinds of things, really runs most of his life rampant across uh, you know, Persia, Saudi Arabia, uh, between, you know, two great cities, Mecca and Medina, um, and, and records, you know, what he calls his revelations by God. Um, he is who is single-handedly um, responsible for really inflaming and igniting like Urban II, Pope Urban II, to start what are called the Crusades. And so Muhammad, in his writings, um, around you know almost 600 years after Christ, um, way after Ishmael and that whole event, um, decides to sort of unify. Now, like every great religious leader, when he dies, there's got to be some successor, right? There's got to be, or there's going to be confusion. So. Today, in 2023, we have two prominent groups of Islam, which are what? Do you know them? The, the, Shia, the Shiites and the Sunnis. So one of them, and I'll tell you, I don't know, remember which one is which, but one of them wanted to follow the cousin of Muhammad. The other one wanted to follow one of Muhammad's, not a relative, but one of the teachers under Muhammad. And to this day, you have that, that, um, that division one is very militant, the other is much more passive. One is very, very strict in the oppression of women and children, uh, not being able to read, not being able to write, not to be able to attend, you know, uh, study and things like that. And the other one is slightly more um, modern, we might say. But anyways, it's this time period and the writings that start to offend Christendom and start to offend the popes and they decide let's go to the Middle East and let's kick these guys out um, and they try several times but they do it very corruptly I'll get there so anyways that's just a little aside so uh, that's all going on though right now that's all going on during this time period it's chaotic so Clovis all right talked about him gives way to this guy Charles Martel the hammer it's interesting how God preserves what he told Paul in Acts, which was not to go east, but to go what? West. And here's some 1,100 years later, okay, God still makes this happen, okay? And an and, and evil man, albeit, kicks out the Muslims out of Europe, they got to flee across the Mediterranean, back to North Africa, and back to the East. And still to this day, the dominant influence in Europe and the West is, if we were to call one religion the dominant influence, it's what? It's Christianity. So every time one of these little infiltrators starts to happen, God in his providence, through a good man or an evil man, doesn't allow it. 
So the Muslims are driven out of Spain in 732. They tried to control all of Spain, um, but they were never again and never again to become a threat to Central or Western Europe. The hammer came in and came down pretty hard. Charles uh, Martel, Charles Martel the Hammer, son Pepin, did not have nearly as cool a name. He was Pepin the Short, not the Hammer, but he was also a good leader. He was also an effective leader. The Short was a worthy successor to his father from 741 to 768, so about 27 years. Pepin gave rule over the Papal States, which I'll explain what those are. Um... Not a good shift in the history of, of uh, the church, but he gave rule over the papal states to the pope. He called it the donation of Pepin. So he gave a bunch of land that stretched diagonally across uh, Italy to the pope himself. The pope was able to kind of rule over this. Um, we actually trace what the Vatican is. Do you know the Vatican today? It's that little area. It's actually that little um, piece of land within Rome that's still governed only by whom? The Pope in 2023. Did you even know that? Um, this is where it's traced. Pepin, Pepin gave this land to the Pope and still some, you know, thousand and 250 years, roughly 1250 years later, the Pope is still there. Um, this alliance between the Franks and the papacy affected the course of European politics and Christianity for centuries. It accelerated the separation of the Latin church from the Greek church by providing the papacy with a dependable Western ally in place of the Byzantines. Hitherto, or consequently, it's only protector against the Lombards, which were the sort of the people of that region of France and Germany, it was the Cre and Northern Italy, it created the papal states which played a major role in the Italian, poli Italian politics until the late 19th century. That's when we have the end of the Renaissance. And by the ritual anointing, it provided Western kingship with a religious sanction that would contribute to the rivalry between Pope and Emperor. I just summarized a whole lot of history there. Um, what I'm trying to say there is this was the beginning of an alliance between kings and popes. Um, even though they fought over power, it, it created an alliance. There's only one problem. One significant step remained to restore the Christian empire to the West, and that came to the rise of the power of Pepin's illustrious son, Charles. Today we call him Charlemagne, Charles the Great. So let's look at this guy. Einhard was a, a, a historian. I, I forgot to put him in my sources, um, but he, he's, a, he's a good historian of this time period. In his famous biography of Charlemagne, he pictured the king as a natural leader of men. Um, this guy was, there, there are, you maybe have seen portraits of him. Um, he was a linebacker as a king. He, he was, a, he was a, a physical specimen as well as a very, very smart man. He was tall. He was physically strong. He was a great horseman. Um, he was always in the van of the hunt. He was at the front. He was a Teddy Roosevelt kind of guy. That's my favorite president, by the way, ever. Um, a rough rider. Um, conservationist. Anyways, uh, Charlemagne was like that guy. Charlemagne sought to extend Christendom into Spain. He conquered the Bavarians and the Saxons, um, which is pretty much much of Central Europe and Western Europe, all of Spain, the last of the independent Germanic tribes. He divided these areas into bishoporics, 
or bishoprics, which are, and he built monasteries and he proclaimed harsh laws against paganism. I didn't get time to put this in there. When he's building these monasteries, he's also creating universities. This is where we get our universities here today, although we are way different. They are not, most of them, associated with the church. But let me just talk to you about this. What do you study at a university? If you're at the first university and you're in a monastery and you're in this Gothic, and this is also the Gothic time period where we get Gothic art and Gothic um, cathedrals and so forth, um, what do you study at a university? What's the root word of university? Universe, right? The universe. You study the universe. Well, at the time period, you study the universe, you study the maker of the universe. And so here, a few hundred years later, you're going to see Huss and Wycliffe, and you're going to see Luther, and all of these guys are some of the great what? The great reformers. Okay, so here, even though it was a bad time period, the Reformation essentially starts in these universities, which were instituted by a guy who's not so great. Anyway, just to point that out. So Charlemagne, he moves east. He decimates the Slavs, right? This is, the, this is more Eastern Europe. This is modern-day Slovakia, uh, the Czech Republic, Austria. Uh, the Avers, uh, that's more where Austria, Hungary, Northeast, or, uh, Romania, and then all of the Asiatic nomads later called this area Austria. He called it this. He also intervenes in Italian politics like his father before him. He expanded the Italian territory and he reaffirms the papal states, which led to the Pope to divinely sanction Charlemagne as his protector. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. You don't mess with me, I won't mess with you. That was kind of the agreement here. Uh, he expands the Italian territory. I'm sorry. He even sued the emperor in Constantinople uh, in 812, which was the Eastern sort of Orthodox empire. The Eastern court acknowledges Charlemagne as an emperor. We are now closer to Rome um, than uh, even, you know, in, in the last 400 years um, in terms of how it functioned. Theoretically, church and state were in harmonious interplay each aiming to secure the good of mankind. Was that reality? No. In fact, however, the Pope and the Emperor were contestants. They really hated each other behind closed doors. The ever-present question was, should the church rule the state? Not a lot has changed. Or should the state control the church? Not a lot has changed. The conflict between the two set the stage for the Crusades. It set the stage for feudalism. Feudalism was, um, in fact, the government got so corrupt. Um, this is also where we get our states' rights. This is like, you know, do you remember the discussion between Jefferson and the Federalists um, where, hey, should we give more power to the states or should we give more power to the federal government? Remember this? All right. It was about a hundred-year-long um, discussion that resolved itself with a little conflict called the Civil War. Um, anyways, this was the same concept. The, the national government, so to speak, or the government of the state, the pope or the king, had become so corrupt, so ineffective, that wealthy landlords broke away. And they ran what they called their own feudal states. In other words, if I had a thousand acres, I just ruled that. 
and I had indentured servants and I had slaves and I took care of them and you get the idea. So it broke away from what was large. It became more what we think of as local in terms. So feudalism is resulted from this, the rise of universities, uh, which ended up being good in some cases today, not so good, and eventually the rise of the reformers. So the decline of the Middle Ages, I'm going to go fast now. Time has a way of sifting and testing human achievements. It has a way of sifting out institutions, which at first glance seem to be quite worthy, eventually crumble to ruins because the centuries bring out flaws. Like Rome itself, like the Greek Empire itself, like other empires before it. The institutions or systems, as historian Herbert Butterfield, who was a, a Christian, by the way, describes that have built their own built-in judgment throughout the process of time. I think it's interesting. Since the medieval papacy was one of those systems, it too fell under judgment for untold corruption and flaws. The Babylonian captivity, which was a 70-year period in this time period where there was no pope. There was so much disagreement that there was you know, no central pope. And I, I think it's interesting, too, that they called it the Babylonian captivity. Because the Babylonian captivity was quite the opposite of this, which was the spreading out of people. Remember where God just spread them out and they all spoke different languages? Well, they didn't want this. That they wanted there to be one unified ruler, and instead they're a bunch of ineffective rulers. Then it gives way to what the great, was the great schism or the great gap between the East and West, the Latin and the, the uh, Byzantine, I'm sorry, the Latin and the Greek papacies. Uh, basic reforms were in order. They had to come. The basic idea that the papal office was the channel of God's will slowly died, thankfully, Two brave souls, John Wycliffe, an Englishman, and John Huss, a Czech, dared to toy with the idea that the Christian church was something other than a visible organization on earth headed by the Pope. Soon to follow, the Age of Reformation. I want to go back and fill in here a little bit to note. So, <clears throat> you know how the saying goes, right? It's got to get worse before what? Before it gets better. Well, you got a thousand years of it getting worse um, in this time period. You, you have fighting in the East. You have the sale of indulgences, which was the Pope's way of raising money and saying, hey, you're going to be granted certain things by God. He thought he had the authority to forgive sins himself and just crazy stuff raises money to send crusades um, eastward. So you have that going on. You have um, um, one of the most corrupted time periods in history of incest, of homosexuality, of slavery. Um, I, I, can't, I can't even... I can't even words begin to describe the, the, the depravity, the, the sinfulness, the evilness of government of this time period. And from there is where we get the reform. I want you to go in your Bibles, get this out. This is how I planned to end this morning. And go to, and I think this is insightful into our own attitude toward government. 
if there's something we can learn from this class, remember I said that uh, the, the, the continuous provision by God in every age to raise up men of the faith or women of the faith to protect the faith um, happened. And eventually we get the reformers here. But go to Daniel, Daniel 4. Um, I have it already saved on my phone, so I'm going to go there. And I think it's verses 25, verses 24, 25, somewhere in there. It is. And do you remember Daniel here? I know Roger could explain this from rote memory. But here is where Nebuchadnezzar is going nuts, right? He's having the vision, and Daniel comes to him and interprets this. Do you remember this part? But I want to point something out here. And I want to read this to you. You can follow along. Go to Daniel 4, 24 and 25. So at, this is where he's, he's, he's going to explain the, the vision of the beasts of the field in the seven periods. And he says, This interpretation, O king, and this decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind... And your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you given to eat grass, I'm sorry, given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of the heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you. And why? Here's the answer. Here's why. Until you recognize that who? The Most High is ruler over the realm of what? Mankind. And he bestows on it, or he imposes on it, he places on it, what? Whomever he wishes. And let's read 26. He says, and this is where I think our, our, my own and our own attitudes can be focused, like Nebuchadnezzar. And he says, and that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you. When? When will this be assured to you? After you recognize that what? That it is heaven who rules. Heaven who rules. We know and we can have great confidence that regardless in our day, 2023, right? What's the 30th? Yeah, all day. July, today, all day, July 30th, until we realize this side of heaven that the ruler, the ultimate ruler is our heavenly ruler, that whatever happens, whatever takes place here, regardless if we're in the Middle Ages, regardless if we're in the time of Daniel, regardless if we're, you know, wherever, you fill in the blank, our own attitudes and our own minds and our own focus be focused on ultimately the rulership is, it's in heaven. And just like um, our theology, God will straighten out our politics. So, <clears throat> Keenan. But Ryan, there, it doesn't say that we should sit idly by if the government is going against the Bible. I'll get to that. So, um, the best study of that is in the Reformation. When do we? There is a time. When, when do you and how do you um, take action? And, and there, there are provisions in Scripture, and I'll, I'll hit that next time. Um, but, but, we, but we should. There, Timothy is very clear on this. Pray for our government. Why? 
He, he, in, the, in the command, in the imperative, pray for our government, he also says why we should pray for our government. Come on now. Why? Loud, Brian. Live a peaceful life. Live a peaceful life. So that we can sit here and enjoy the teaching and the freedoms that we have. Um, and, and there are reasons, though, Keenan, we'll get to this, that when should we or how should we take action is when the government commands us to do something that is contrary to Scripture or when... Um, Scripture commands us to do something that is contrary to the government. And uh, the, the reformers saw this. There are, there are times. Um, but until then, um, I, I'll just tell you too, I've, you and I have had these conversations, Keenan and I have had these conversations, and I appreciate his, his heart on this subject. Um, I don't, this is a personal view. Again, you don't have to take this, but I have very, very, very liberal family members. I have, um, and then I have the extreme opposite family members as well. And I will not, nor have I ever posted anything political on my social media. I'm very rarely on there. Um, I won't do it um, for one major reason. There are people for, and one in particular, who's become a very close friend of mine who is a very liberal. And I don't want him understanding my politics and getting in the way of an effective ministry toward him. Um, I will not let my politics muddy the waters between what um, is seen as morality and politics versus what is seen as the gospel. Um, if you want change, if we want lasting change, you know this, if we want lasting change, um, it's not going to be through presidents. It's not going to be through senators. It's not going to be through that stuff. It's going to be through the gospel. It's going to be the church being effective and us being effective in that way. And that's, uh, that's ultimately what the reformers were. When, you know, at Wittenberg, when, this, when, when the 95 theses or the 95 writings that were put on there by Luther and then others followed, um, it, was, it was the focus became, what does the word say? What does Scripture say about how I interact in this, in this world and, and much of it toward politics? Um, I would contend, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this as well, I don't think our ministry is very effective if we're out picketing in front of abortion clinics. I don't think our ministry is very effective if we're, you know, write your letters, write your emails, um, go for it. Um, um, I would include scripture, you know, throw some Colossians 3.23 in there, throw some, some of that stuff, because that is our sword, as you know. But I don't think our, our ministry is very effective um, if we're also inflaming others. So I'll, I'll talk about that uh, next, uh, next time, Lord willing. The Reformation is a great, great example, a great time period of how um, how to do something and how not to do something. So <clears throat> we'll get there. Any other comments or questions? Go ahead, Amy. This time period, was this the time where the biblical manuscripts were mostly maintained in the monasteries? Yes, oh yes, and we'll see that too. So the universities um, that we saw in this time period um, were monks, um, 
translating and we see the, the greatest production, uh, to history at that point, the greatest production of scripture and the greatest recording of scripture meticulously recorded, literally counting consonants, literally counting the number of T's and making sure this manuscript was the same as this manuscript is the same as this manuscript. And, um, and it was these men's jobs. And eventually we see the Jesuits, which I'll talk a little bit about too, um, who even went more extensively in that direction. Good question. What else? It's 10.01. My goodness. Let me close the prayer. You've already got the good seats, though, so we don't have to worry about that. I'll, I'll pray. Father, we thank you for uh, the study this morning. I thank you, Lord, for how you've used uh, in your master plan, how you've used men um, in the church and to sustain the church. But most of all, we know that it's Christ, the cornerstone. We look forward to worshiping him this morning in song. We look forward to worshiping him um, in our hearts and in our minds. I pray, Lord, that your word that we learned this morning would fall on, on fertile soil, that we would receive the word implanted, which we know is able to save. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.